Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Oh, Neil Garfield, and it's springtime. Or at least it's supposed to be. It's kind of cold here in Jacksonville. Uh, this is Thursday, March twenty second, March twenty second, two thousand eighteen. What to do when an appeal is necessary and advised? Tonight, the host for that for this show is Attorney Charles Marshall in California. First, a message about our websites, uh, Lending Lies. And some of the email addresses are still under reconstruction. So it'll be another few days. Uh, and if you've been sending to emails to any of the lending lies addresses, they may be held up or we may need you to send it again. Uh, that sh- situation should be corrected over the next couple of days. Uh, you can still contact us if you use our VCITA, V-C-I-T-A site where uh, both Living Lies and Lending Lies are still up. And uh, we'll be making live changes uh, after Lending Lies is reconstructed. You'll find the link to our VCITA platform on the home page of the blog. Bear with us. Uh, thank you for uh, uh, for bearing with us. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, and Charles is broadcasting from San Diego, not Florida, California. One's judicial and the other is non-judicial, but Charles has good knowledge on the non on the judicial states as well. Brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm with offices in South Florida. This show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners just like you, and thank you for your support. And for those of you who are not contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call 202-838-6345 and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you, if our work on the blog has value for you, and realize how many hours per day and per week and per month and per year go into presenting all of that information without any compensation of any kind. We need donations in order to keep the doors open 
and the machinery running. Please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. So tonight, Charles Marshall is going to give the basics of appellate practice in under 30 minutes, dealing with issues to consider when you're going up on appeal, either as the appellant or the appellee. Welcome, Charles. And what is an appeal anyway? Take it from there. Okay, Neil. Uh, Great to be on, as always. Uh, An appeal is essentially taking an unfavorable decision, and you could be on either the plaintiff's side or you could be on the defendant's side. And, of course, this even applies in the criminal procedure realm. We won't be discussing criminal procedure per se, but the appellate procedures are actually fairly similar in some fundamental ways. It's just that defendants in criminal proceedings, of course, have more rights. But the bottom line of an appeal is when the party on either side is unhappy with the ruling, particularly when the nature of the ruling means they lose the entire case, then an appeal is often appropriate and when you lose an entire case, no matter what side you're on, plaintiff or defense, the state and criminal cases, criminal defendants, whatever your position, the appeal is often your only option to keep any kind of legal consideration or future legal hearing available to vindicate your rights. And where we see this in foreclosure, in the non-judicial states, we see very typically plaintiff's cases where the plaintiff is the homeowner or the borrower, um, often the occupant of the residence at issue, of the subject property. If they get a, a case-ending final judgment, then the only way to be able to continue legal proceedings against those parties on those issues is to take the case up on appeal. And in California, that time period is 60 days if it's a state case. And even that's a little complicated, but you're looking for either an order or you're looking for a judgment based on an order. And then there's something that's even called a notice of entry or judgment, notice of entry of order or judgment. And that's typically the thing to appeal from because then the court knows when somebody appeals and they've made a copy or they've simply supplied a copy, I I should say, of the notice of of entry of order or judgment. When they do that, then the appellate court knows that everybody's got notice of that appeal. And, of course, the other side is going to be served anyway when you do appeal. But it's a jurisdictional issue, as we've discussed on this show before, so that's a timeline that you that you have to make. Again, if it's a state matter, it's 60 days. If it's federal, and this is true in all circuits, including you know the Ninth Circuit ones of Mariana Islands and and Guam, that type of thing. But the other 13 circuits around the country, 30 days is the natural appeal time if it's a federal case. And again, that's going to be, you're going to be appealing ideally from a judgment. 
there are situations where you could potentially appeal from an order. Uh, the only thing there is sometimes the appellate court will kick it out and say that uh, we need a judgment. There's only an order. And the legal procedure on that is not overly complex, but it's still fairly involved. So there are a number of different issues you have to address when, you, when you're looking at a possible appeal. There's also what's called the one judgment rule. You, you see this especially in unlawful detainer cases. My experience, of course, is California, so that's where I've seen it a lot. Uh, particularly when you are on the plaintiff side in a non-judicial setting. And in this case, you'd actually be on the defendant's side in an unlawful detainer case. So you could have a plaintiff's case going, but you could be a defendant in an unlawful detainer case where the nominal supposed owner trust is suing you to kick you out of your property after a non-judicial foreclosure sale. Now, in that situation, the nominal trust plaintiff who's trying to kick you out of the property, they're supposed to get a judgment against all the parties before they move forward with a writ of possession or anything else. So in effect, even the appellate option relative to any specific judgment against a specific defendant, the court's looking for you to have one judgment against all parties before any kind of writ of possession could be moved on, which, of course, again, in the non-judicial setting, that's that's our people. That's the consumers. That's the borrowers who are trying to stop that type of judgment. So the one judgment rule benefits our side, typically on the defense side. But the one judgment rule can get in the way because, again, the, the, the whole point of the one judgment rule is economy of resources and, you know, eliminating duplicative legal procedures and the re-airing of substantive issues when a lot of the same issues are going to be applied to multiple defendants. So when you're a plaintiff's attorney, when you're a plaintiff in, let's say, a California non-judicial lawsuit, you often have multiple defendants. I mean, you can have eight to ten multiple defendants, but you're certainly going to see in most cases the servicer of a nominal trust holder, sometimes a sales trustee. So you'll often have three, certainly three to five defendants on the other side in these institutional foreclosure cases in California. Are, that is a very common scenario. And according to the one judgment rule, you should really get a judgment against all parties before you take the case on appeal. Except, again, just as the California court, appellate courts will sometimes insist that you appeal from a judgment when you only have an order to appeal from, even though when you look at the relevant codes, you could hypothetically appeal from a minute order, you could appeal from an order, and you could appeal from a judgment. As long as it ends the case completely or it ends the case against one defendant. Though, again, if you've got multiple defendants and you're trying to take your case up on appeal before the entire case is disposed of, let, let's say, then the courts can kick you out of that situation too and say, no, you need to wait to have all defendant matters handled. I've also seen scenarios where they let out a defendant from an appeal 
where the individual defendant was not appealed, you know, within that 60 day time frame, even though there were other, other defendants continuing to proceed along in the case. So it is a complicated area in that sense. The main thing for consumer and bar, consumers and borrowers, and I think this is true, especially in non-judicial foreclosure states, because there, there can be a lot of defendants on the other side when you're the plaintiff borrower. So you want to make sure that all the procedure is is arranged and arrayed somewhat in advance so there aren't issues later. Um, but, you know, like in so many areas, the law is a moving target here, and everything has to be arranged just so, and even when it is arranged just so, you can have a court say no to something that's routine procedure, and then they have a different spin on it, and then those are just adjustments that have to be made on the fly. But the biggest issue is jurisdictionally. And, you know, one of the big issues here is can jurisdictional issues be brought up for the first time on appeal? There's two pieces to this. One is the appellate courts are separate jurisdictions. So if you're going to appeal and when you appeal, the case is going to go to the separate body called the appellate court. And that's why you can't be late in terms of the time frames. Once it's with the appellate court, yeah, you could be late with paperwork sometimes. You'll get an extension. Even sometimes with the extensions, you don't have to meet them, you know, down to the last, you know, day literally. But on the jurisdictional side, yes, you do. And jurisdictional issues generally can't be brought up on appeal for the first time. Um, it is a complex area, and it's not to say that that's never available, but generally speaking, jurisdictional issues have to be raised in the forum where they apply. So when you're in the lower court, if you're going to challenge jurisdiction, that really should be challenged at that time. Even if it's challenged late in the case, that can still be considered a legitimate challenge. Um, in terms of other aspects to the appeal matter, of course, there are always going to be issues that have to be framed on appeal. And there's also the standard of review, which is both simple and complex at the same time. It's simple in the sense that most appellate courts all around the country, the standard of review is abuse of discretion, meaning the, the, whatever the issues on appeal, the the way those issues are framed is did the judge, did the fact finder, so remember the fact finder is going to be the jury where the, there's a jury trial and the judge where it's a what's called a bench trial or a judge trial, did the fact finder abuse their discretion in, in ruling as they did? And, of course, ultimately the judge is going to sign off on what what the intersection of the facts and law is. So the abuse of discretion standard also applies to the judge's legal analysis. Um, the, the bottom line there is it's kind of a standard that back of the envelope means the judge kind of has to, or the fact finder, but again, ultimately the judge, even if it's a jury case, judge signs off on everything. So the ultimate question is, did he or she 
abuse their discretion in ruling as they did. And unfortunately, that's a really, really high bar. Of course, some appeals will be won, even though that standard seems to be finessed. And in other cases, where you would think there's a strong appellate case, because of the abuse of discretion standard, the appellate court has an easy out, and they can simply say they don't find an abuse of discretion. Um, There's also the issue of what's really being considered on an appeal. Now, I think most of the borrowers have heard of a writ. Those are very real things in the foreclosure world because this all goes back to old English law and even as it existed at the time of the founding of the Constitution. What applies here is what's called a writ of mandate and that generally applies to criminal matters where they, they talk about um, a situation where your personal freedom is going to be you know, eliminated. You're going to be in jail. You could be in jail on some kind of a bond issue or you could be in jail to serve an actual sentence that you now have on appeal. And the whole port- point of a writ of mandate usually – is to try to prevent you from being essentially tasked and taxed with the the decision that's come down on your head and that you, you appeal it even if the overall case is still ongoing. So that sounds a little complex. The way it plays out in foreclosure is there's another word for this too, interlocutory appeal. So one way of doing an interlocutory appeal is to, is, is to put forward a writ to the appellate court. And normally appellate courts don't want to hear a matter on the lower court level. They don't want to hear that case until the entire case is disposed of. You know, go back to the one judgment rule we were talking about recently in this uh, in this show. And so on a writ of mandate, what happens is you're not only asking through an interlocutory means, meaning you want the court to address a specific order. Sanctions orders are often appealed this way, and that can show up in foreclosure. I mean, you can have sanctions motion related to discovery. And let's say you as an attorney or your client is hit with a major sanctions. It could be four or $5,000 in some cases. Now, you could appeal that right away rather than having to wait for the whole case to be settled or the whole case to be disposed of. Of course, if you won the case, then appealing that type of order is still something that's theoretically available. If you lose the case, it could be part of your overall appeal. But the whole thing about something like a sanctions order is, do you want to wait? Can you wait? for months or years for the case to wind its way through. In many cases, that's not realistic. So the interlocutory appeal means you can bring up a specific issue like a sanctions order, especially if there's a component to the order that says until you comply with the sanction, whatever it is, you could be fined a certain amount per day. There's even really over-the-top situations, even in civil law, where you can be jailed if you don't comply with the sanctions scenario. You rarely see that in foreclosure, but it's not out of the question. So you will typically get one judge who will hear that writ. Sometimes you can get three-judge panel. 
Now, with a full case appeal, you're usually going to get, in most states or at the federal level, a three-judge panel, or you can have an entire uh, entire airing through, through through the entire court. Meaning, if it's an appellate court with nine justices or nine judges, you'd have everybody consider it. Now, that's unusual. You have to have a special request for that. And one of the other issues here is, you know, when does oral argument occur? And that's going to be late in the game of an appeal. Uh, every side has to brief first, and the the methods for briefing are very typical and uh, predictable. You don't always know just when you're going to be scheduled for briefing. And that varies from court to court and venue to venue, even federal to state. But what's important to keep in mind here is that you might have a briefing schedule that says, okay, you got to do your opening brief if you're on the appellant side, meaning the, the side that brought the appeal. You might have to do your, pre, your, brief, your opening brief, let's say, two months out or six weeks out or nine weeks out from the date they tell you. Now, you can usually get extensions, two, three months in some places like California. And then the other side might get extensions, and they're typically going to have 30 days out of the gate from when you file. It's less than federal, typically, by the way. But you'll, you'll always see what the exact standards are. And then so you have the opening brief, you have the respondent's brief, then you have the reply brief, which, again, is one more opportunity for the appellant to frame their case based strictly on what the respondent's brief said. Reply brief is supposed to stick with the content of the actual respondent's brief. Now, there's also the issue of what kind of new facts or new law can you bring up on appeal? You're not supposed to bring up new facts, and that really is something that's, I would say, across the board, state and federal. Appellate courts, certainly you're not going to frame any of your, your briefing pleading as bringing up new facts. That can be a real problem. I mean, there could be possible exceptions where you try to justify that, but generally that's not going to be available. On the issue of new law, though, theoretically, if there's new law or there's recent law that's come to apply to the facts you have put forward, then yes, you can bring that in. And that's not that uncommon. You can even present new legal theories for the first time on the field. Now, that is frowned on. But new legal theories, that's not considered the same thing as new facts. And uh, one can see why new facts are kind of frowned upon. Because you can be, be basically just be reconstructing a whole new case. I mean, how can the court decide if the previous case was, was, was done properly or not if there are a bunch of new facts threaded in, which creates a whole new set of issues about the intersection of facts and law? So you can't change your facts. You don't get new facts. But you, you can spin new theories depending on how you do it and you want to be uh, – doing that type of thing in a way that makes it look like you're going back and addressing your previous legal theories as well. And oral argument, it will be scheduled eventually. And, I mean, in California, at the state level especially, an appeal sometimes doesn't come up for three to five years. 
Uh, it could also come up as quickly as six months. You could get oral arguments scheduled within two to three months of the briefing being done. I've certainly seen that in some of my cases. I've also seen three years or more. That would be on the far end. So typically one to two years from when you do your briefing is when oral argument is scheduled. And, of course, the other side, you know, they're going to appear, you're going to appear. Now, both sides or either side can say they, they defer, they're not going to, you know, insist on oral argument. They'll, they'll do what's called submit on the briefs. That's still unusual. I think there's a trend now, though, and I'm not a fan of this. Now what's happening in state appellate court in California is they're, they're issuing tentative rulings and appeals. So you will see a tentative ruling sometimes days, sometimes the day before, like with state court matters. Uh, so you'll see a tentative ruling from the appellate court. I, I think this is yet one more undermining of traditional legal procedure. I mean, the whole point of oral argument is, yes, you're going to stick with the briefs to a large extent. And, yes, you can't create new facts, but you can talk about some new law, depending on how you presented it, especially if it's in the briefs. However, whatever you expand on that's in the briefs and whatever you emphasize it's still tied to the case in chief that you're talking about. You can't go off on whole new tangents that just have nothing to do with what you presented. And that makes sense as well. But the idea that the court is going to prejudge your case, which is what tentative rulings are all about. It basically nullifies the significance of oral argument. And while the judicial economy argument at the lower level, I don't like tentative rulings there either, because I think it, it eliminates the power and the right of oral argument, which is supposed to be there as both a backstop and a failsafe so that if the parties or even the judge and the court and the fact finder get matters wrong based on the pleadings or the briefs as appellate courts call those pleadings, then oral argument is one last opportunity for things to be made right. And by by allowing tentative rulings to control all these proceedings, you put a ridiculous barrier, you put, put a ridiculous burden on the oral arguer. I mean, California tentative rulings, I know they're upheld some very high number of times. I would say 95% is possibly a low number. So we're saying maybe hypothetically one out of 30 or 40 tentative rulings might be reversed after oral argument. Again, I don't know the final, final number. I know it's very low. And uh, when you do have these decisions that finally come down, and they could come down either days after oral argument or they could come down weeks or months. Weeks or months is more typical. Not necessarily, though. Sometimes it will be quicker than that. And uh, the court can issue a decision without written commentary. Uh, one other aspect um, when that final decision comes down, everybody knows about the U.S. Supreme Court, their state Supreme Courts, analogous to the uh, to the U.S. Supreme Court. In fact, the only sort of 
jurist called justices in the uh, United States system anyway. They are members of the Supreme Courts, whether it's the U.S. Supreme Court or the California Supreme Court or the Idaho Supreme Court. And there's no right to take a case to those places. You have to go up on petition. A lot of people have heard about that to the U.S. Supreme Court. It's true of California. That's how the Ivanova decision ultimately came down in in, uh, the favor of uh, borrowers. Um, So a petition will take a negative appellate ruling, and the party who's unhappy with that appellate ruling will take it to the Supreme Court, whether it's U.S. or California, depending on whether it's a federal state or whatever state you're in, case. And very small numbers of those are heard. I think the typical percentage, well, U.S. Supreme Court, California Supreme Court, I know the numbers are very small, 5% or less, meaning just statistically, you only have a 5% chance of your case being taken up when you do it. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lies Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.